Hi, this is Scott Thompson. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Show podcast. Thanks for listening. Tell your friends. Feel free to subscribe. Coming up on today's show, Hamilton joins the rest of Ontario into Stage 3. We cover that from every single angle that is possible, and it covers everything in this new world. It's all coming up on a Scott Thompson Show podcast. Today on the Scott Thompson Show on 900 CHML. I'm Curtis Thompson, Scott's son. Congratulations, Hamilton. You have made it to Stage 3. Celebrate, but social distance and wear a mask. And no speaking moistly. Welcome to the Scott Thompson Home Show. Here, Scott Thompson! Good afternoon. It is 1210. It is 900 CHML. I'm Scott Thompson. Will Erskine back at the station keeping us on the air. It is the Scott Thompson Home Show. All right. Uh, there are increases in some cases, as we have mentioned. Obviously, this was predicted as we move into uh, the, uh, you know, other stages from stage two to stage three and such. Uh, specifically with uh, younger people, meaning young adults and such. Let's bring in Dion Aylman, Associate Professor, Department of Mechanical and, Engineer- and Industrial Engineering, Faculty of Applied Science, uh, Medical Operations Research Lab, and is with us now. Dion, thanks so much for the time. Much appreciated. Hi, thanks for having me. So uh, we are starting to see some fluctuation in cases. Uh, last weekend, there was a bit of a spike. That kind of tapered off. We're now seeing it come up. Uh, many officials predicted this would happen as we gradually reopen. What are your thoughts about where we are? Well, I guess where we are is is in some ways kind of predictable. Um, you know, it, it seems like uh, there's a slight uptick in, in cases across the province as there have been a lot of relaxations, which makes sense. Um, I know a lot of people will probably look at the numbers and say, oh, well, you know, like, you know, like almost a quarter of the province's numbers are coming just from that uh, migrant farm related outbreak in Windsor. But the reality of the situation is that once we get to pretty low prevalence of COVID, uh, most of our new cases are going to be because of localized um, outbreaks that hopefully get contained pretty quickly. But these outbreaks are, are basically going to be happening uh, for a long time, just little sparks here, little sparks there. Uh, so we can't just discount uh, what we see and say, oh, it's just because of one outbreak, because we're going to be seeing these little sorts of outbreaks for a long time, which is why it's it's really important for everybody to continue being very careful about being physically distant and uh, wearing masks uh, when you can't be distant um, and just uh, in general being mindful because we don't want any of these little sparks to turn into a wildfire. So how concerned are you, um, uh, as an expert in this, uh, how concerned are you that as we do gradually reopen, people might drop uh, their guard a little bit? Are you, are you confident that people will heed this advice and, and realize that if, if we're, we're too rambunctious, these things will go backwards? Well, I wish I had more insight into the human psyche to, uh, mm. to be able to answer that question. Uh, but uh, the fact of the matter is I, I really just don't know. I mean, my, my intuition is that people will slowly start to become more and more complacent as time goes by when they don't see that uh, they themselves or people that they know are being affected by any of these localized outbreaks, which in turn will probably result in more localized outbreaks. Um, but whether or not, you know, people can, you know, continue to uh, stay the course in terms of being physically distant and wearing masks or whether or not people are just going to just, say, forget it, I'm tired of doing all of this, and what happens, happens. Um, you know, I just don't know. 
what are your thoughts on seeing the increases we are in younger demographics? How concerned are you with that? Um, is this something that just needs, you know, the message to be redirected? Yeah, it is a little bit concerning. Um, but uh, when you think about what's happening with uh, with uh, the various reopenings and relaxations, it's going to be people in those younger demographics that are starting to be the ones that actually change their behaviors, that go out more and that, you know, do stuff more. You know, most of the elderly population is probably not going out to restaurants and bars uh, like the younger um, population. So it's not so surprising that uh, that sort of like, like, let's say like 20 to 40 um, age group is getting a lot more exposure than they were over the past couple of months. So, of course, we're going to see an uptick in cases among that group. Uh, hopefully, you know, people are paying attention to uh, to these numbers and realize that, um, you know, any thoughts that they had about, you know, being uh, quote unquote young, um, giving them some sort of uh, inherent uh, resistance to COVID is, is really not true. Um, you know, any lower numbers that we saw uh, earlier in the pandemic were because of things like the shutdown and people staying home. And uh, let's also not forget that uh, for the first few months of the pandemic, um, and in fact, even even up till now, in in some cases, um, tests are restricted to people who are high priority um, in one way or another. So a lot of people who were otherwise young and healthy just weren't able to get tested, which would have suppressed um, the actual prevalence numbers in uh, in that age group. And I guess what's important to remember here that this has not been cured. It has not been defeated. We've just been successful in in suppressing this. But and as we go out, uh, we have to be mindful of that, that it is still living amongst us. And it's this process, these protocols that have kept us where we are. Yep, that's exactly right. That's exactly right. We are where we are because of the protocols that are in place. Uh, so even if things are, you know, being technically illegally lifted and allowed to reopen, uh, we need to remember that what got we need to remember, you know, kind of who brung us to this dance, right? And it was mm. being physically distant, um, wearing masks, and we need to keep that up if uh, we want to continue uh, enjoying the privilege of of having facilities be reopened. Um, you know, we live uh, in a close proximity, well, I guess everybody does in southern Ontario, of an airport. We see air travel flying overhead, I remember, when it virtually stopped. We're starting to see more of it and more of it as those flight uh, routes open up. Uh, how concerned are you about air travel? Well, it, a lot of it mostly depends on where people are coming from. Like if these are, you know, if it's domestic air travel, uh, you know, it's probably really not not that big of a deal because pretty much all of Canada is relatively under control with COVID. I mean, definitely um, very few places can, can boast that they're down to zero, but lots of places just the you know, general infection levels are, are really very low or at least lower than they are here in Southern Ontario. So people coming in uh, from other parts of Canada is probably not going to um, mess up our situation too much. But if international travel starts to be allowed or Canadians returning home from being um, international, that's when there start to be a lot of questions and, and worries about, um, you know, are those people infected um, coming from wherever they're coming from, like, you know, snowbirds coming back, for example, from Florida, um, or did they get infected en route to getting back to uh, to Canada, in which case, even if they get tested as soon as they get here, you know, like the test might not come back uh, positive, even if they are infected, because they haven't been infected long enough for there to be enough um, 
virus present uh, for the test to pick up on, are they actually quarantining the way they're supposed to? So, I mean, I'm sure, you know, mm. many of us saw the uh, the news article, uh, maybe it was last week, about that uh, couple from Florida uh, who came back to Ontario and um, were caught not obeying their quarantine and were fined for it. Um, you know, there's only so much enforcement that can be put in place to make sure that people are actually obeying the travel quarantines. So I do have a lot of concern um, in that regard about people traveling. Uh, even across the country, the numbers seem to have a bit of an uptick uh, over the course of the last week. Uh, BC, which has done a great job, uh, as we've seen over the course of this, uh, even introduced uh, more regulations um, in around uh, eating establishments, bars and such uh, because of, uh, of upticks and such. We're also seeing uh, Calgary uh, taking an upswing when they were pretty low at the beginning of all this. Uh, any explanation there? Well, I mean, opening up bars and restaurants um, was probably one of the more risky decisions to uh, to take yeah. along reopening. If you just think about the nature of how people behave in restaurants and bars, you know, there's a lot of loud talking, you know, people might be drinking and restaurants, they're, you know, actively eating with their mouths open uh, all the time. Um, you know, it's kind of a, a prime situation for hmm. for COVID to spread. So it's not surprising that uh, you a lot of uh, a lot of um, uh, community-based transmission could be occurring in these environments. Um, so I do applaud BC for um, you know not being you know too gun shy about um, imposing new restrictions on on these establishments um, to get things under control. And you know I hope that here in Ontario we would show the same willingness to to roll back um, any openings that uh, that seem to be uh, making the situation significantly worse or being willing to impose new restrictions, um, cumbersome though they might be for, uh, for the small businesses that are, that are trying to be open. Um, but, you know, public health and safety has to come first. Is there, there really isn't a way to do this safely 100%. It really is a balancing act, isn't it? Mm-hmm. Yeah, it, it really is. Um, I mean, granted, if we could all just 100% perfectly lock down um, and nobody leave their house for, say, three weeks, um, we could probably fully eradicate COVID um, here in Canada. You know, if nobody is traveling anywhere, no one's coming in. Um, but, uh, you know, even at the most stringent stages of the lockdown, like things were never exactly quite that that strict. So, you know, there's always this kind of like low level of COVID that's still being out and circulating around in the community and, and it only takes really one spread and it only takes one spreader to come in and contaminate all of them that's exactly right you know it 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 just takes one you know maybe on average it's you know really unlikely for that one person to happen but think about you know all the towns and all the cities across all of canada someone somewhere is going to end up being a super spreader if we're not all pretty careful so as we uh, we see Ontario enter um, stage three, uh, more of Ontario, with the exception of, of Toronto and, and Peel and, and Windsor and such, where do you think we're going to be two weeks from now? I mean, it, that, I remember saying that at the beginning of all of this in the first few months, uh, wait two weeks because that's the incubation period and that's when you will know uh, at what stage you're at. Are, are you are you concerned or thinking in those two week periods uh, still? Um, I prefer to think in more of a one month period, yeah. um, frankly, because two weeks is, is, you know, kind of the time for, for one person to become infected and really start to have, uh, quite serious symptoms and then get tested and then get that test result back. Um, but in that time, you know, that person can infect someone else and someone else and those 
someone else's can affect other people. Um, and uh, it can, you know, it can really take a few weeks before the impact of, of any one change in policy is really felt, um, especially, you know, if we're wanting to, uh, to keep our eye on what's happening in hospitals with their beds and ICUs, um, then that could take, you know, like basically a, a full month because, you know, not everyone who gets infected is going to end up in the hospital or needing an ICU bed or, or a ventilator. Um, so it can take time for those impacts to be felt. Um, so I would feel a lot more comfortable if the province were thinking in more of you sort of month by month terms as opposed to two weeks by two weeks, because two weeks by two weeks is, you know, you, you'd kind of be lucky to, uh, to be able to observe the effects of anything happening in just a two week period. How confident do you feel about going out? Oh, I'm not going out anywhere. <laughs> <laughs> How come? I'm lucky enough that I can work from home. <laughs> um, I can yeah. see trees from my window. <laughs> hmm. uh, but uh, yeah, you no, know, I, you bring up you bring up a very valid point in the sense that even as these rules relax, not everybody is going to be jumping in the pool. Yes. Yeah. One would hope that that most people choose to exercise caution. But as we've just discussed, it, it really only takes one for things to, to turn into something really serious. And if there are a lot of people uh, not being cautious, a lot of people getting complacent or thinking that just because a bar is technically open, it means that they can just go, you know, go there and, you know, go hog wild, um, then, yeah, then things are, are going to escalate and uh, things are going to get shut down again. And we're all going to be in this situation for that much longer. How long do you think it's going to be before the U.S. border or Canadian border opens up again? Uh, well, the U.S. really needs to get its act together. And uh, so far, everything that's going on in the U.S. says that uh, they continue to not take COVID seriously um, across uh, much of the country. And, uh, I mean, you just need to look at, just say, Florida. You know, Florida is doing worse every day than Canada has done in grand total. Um, so it it will hopefully be a long time before the border gets opened back up to the U.S. or if the U.S. really finally starts to um, uh, accept reality uh, over politics and um, really clamp down um, on people's movements and um, businesses being open, beaches being open, just, you know, shut it all down, um, wait a few weeks and, uh, and then, see, then see what happens. And until the U.S. does something like that, uh, I just I don't see how we can safely reopen the border with them. Dion Elman has been with us, Medical Operations Research Lab, University of Toronto. Dion, as always, thanks so much for the time. Be well. Have a great weekend. You too. Always a pleasure. All right. Uh, we, we certainly heard about theaters and some of the dilemma they have uh, faced in, in trying to adjust to this n- uh, new world. We also uh, have a love for the Westdale Theater and everything that it has meant to Hamilton and area, uh, and Westdale particularly, over the years. And uh, fabulous to see uh, renovations and things that have been done to that building as it has moved forward uh, into the future. And now, unfortunately, like lots of businesses, stuck in the midst of a COVID-19 pandemic. But like many businesses, the Westdale Theatre has reinvented itself and figured out a way to get the programming out to the public during a pandemic. To talk more about all of this, Rob McCann is with us and Neil Miller from Westdale Theatre, and they are both with us now. Rob and Neil, thanks so much for uh, being here. Hope you're doing well. Thank you for having us. Thanks, Scott. Thanks for having us. So let's get right to it. How are you coping with COVID-19? How have you adapted? And feel free to either one take over here. Okay, so from the Westdale's point of view, I think we've adapted really well. The, the closer, 
certainly presented us with an obstacle, but we moved really quick to move our programming online. And uh, we realized also very quickly that it was more difficult than we thought. Uh, we're used to showing cinema and having live concerts and events and comedy, but uh, we know how to do that kind of content, but pushing it online was an entirely different challenge. And that's where our friend Rob came in with Clear Cable. And they've, uh, they've really guided us and been able to uh, take our content and deliver it to our audiences online. So I think we've adapted quite well with Rob and Clear Cable's help. Rob, how difficult is it to take something on the stage of the Westdale and present it to everybody in such a palatable way that they would enjoy it? Well, you know, the platforms that we have out there today in social media are changing every day because what the pandemic has done has made all of them, Facebook, YouTube, etc., more important in our daily lives. So there is a little bit of technical hurdle to climb over, but once you get it done and you got the workflow working, it is a really great way for creative types, and we have lots of them here in the city, including the Westdale, to get their message and their, their content out. Uh, a whole new opportunity for you, Rob, since this has happened, just the way things have had to shift, had to pivot. That's right, yeah. And, and, you know, it's a message to all traditional media outlets that it is becoming increasingly easier for content creators to get their content out to the masses. Neil, talk about where the Westdale Theatre is on this now. Uh, what have you done to date? What are you starting? Where do you see this going? Well, we're going to continue with our online initi- initiative, certainly. It's been a really good way for us to connect to the community. Um, but as of this afternoon at 3.30, the cinema is open and we're welcoming guests. Um, we have the limitations that have been put forth by the government, um, but we are absolutely confident that it's a safe place to come and enjoy and uh, escape uh, maybe the world around us for a couple of hours. So, so Neil, really... Neil, this will be the best of, of both worlds in the sense that you do get to open up and, and at least allow a limited capacity, but also get to keep what's going on online. Uh, where do you see that going? Do you see that being yeah. a part of, of the ongoing program at the Westdale or even I other do. places? I do, and I think that's one of the incredible things about our organization is uh, we're, we're quick to adapt. We've been around for a long time. In this incarnation, we've only been open for a year as a not-for-profit group. Um, but yeah, I really do see us having a mixture of both and combining both of those worlds and for and moving some, like we have a, a film club, so we have Zoom film clubs where people gather mm. to talk about films that they're interested in. We're going to continue doing them online, but we're also going to move them into the theater. We're going to have film talks in the theater and have people come and discuss a movie and watch it on the big screen. So it'll be a bit of a hybrid, I think, for a long time. And Rob, can you see more and more businesses be going that way? I mean, we've certainly heard the, the, the tragic stories and somehow some businesses have been hurt and, and may fall by the wayside. Uh, but then those that do survive, this is going to look completely different than it did uh, before COVID-19. Absolutely. It affects all sorts of different types of businesses, but particularly the creative industry that's used to being able to present live their content. This allows them the way to have, you know, a, a multimedia, multi-platform experience that's accessible to everybody when they want it and where they want it.
So talk about the theater opening up, uh, Neil, and, you know, obviously with the changes and us moving into stage three, uh, you can go back to somewhat of a traditional uh, show. What will Westdale look like when it is open for theater or for a, yeah. a, a, a cinema of some sort? We feel really prepared. Uh, compared to where we were in March when all of this was brand new, we've learned so much and we've taken the guidance from uh, the government officials and public health and we feel really prepared to welcome people safely. So there's the limitations on seating. There's only 50 seats available. But the fantastic thing is, is we have a big auditorium. It normally fits 345. So there's lots of space for people to sit and enjoy. And I think people have gotten used to the protocols of every day going out. And those will happen in our theater as well. So there'll be physical distancing. There's barriers at the concession stand. You're going to have to wear a mask. All of those things that all of us are getting used to. Um, are you- so it will, it will largely feel the same, but with today's new measures. Are you optimistic, Neil, that you can keep this up, that this can be sustainable till we get out of this? Yeah, I am. I really do think that uh, the work we've done with the community in, uh, in this time that we've been closed and uh, our local feeling and uh, like a mom and pop shop kind of theater i think it is uh going to be sustainable what has the response been to the online programming oh it's been excellent it's been really really good uh we're getting good viewership and the comments from people are extraordinary um about the quality and the type of programming the diversity of the programming the guests that we have are just incredible. We're having Steve Strongman coming up, Steve Smith, who we all know as Red Green. Uh, we had Tom Wilson on the show. We have Colin Doncaster, who's an Academy Award winner, doing one of our film talks on Monday night. Um, so the community's been really invested, and they've been really pleased with what we've been doing. Rather than, you know, this being a negative, is this turning into a positive for the Westdale? Is it turning out that the opportunity uh, may be greater than what you've lost here, just in the way that you can now spread this word? Yeah, that's a really good way of putting it, Scott, and that's how we feel. We feel like we were given an opportunity to enter the or, or continue in the 21st century as a cinema and an, an online performing arts hub as well so give us some details what do you want uh the audience to know and of what's coming up at westdale and and uh, how they can be involved well visit us online at the westdale.ca and all of our programming is there um our our thursday night hamilton original series which clear cable uh powers is moving to monday nights on august 10th so that's going to be a, a continual live concert event and then for our films, right now we're just open on the weekends. We're going slow and steady. Um, so you can check us out. We have two shows a day. And sign up for our mailing list because that's really where you're going to get the most information. All right, Rob McCann and Neil Miller have been with us, responsible for getting the Westdale Theatre up and online into a different platform and perhaps even uh, creating opportunities along the way as Everything changes post-COVID-19, including your experience at the Westdale Theatre. Again, a great building, a great group of people that have kept this thing alive and working uh, beyond the call of duty to even keep moving in that direction. So congratulations to both of you. Well done. Thanks, Scott. 
You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Jump around at stage three, but jump around over there, would you? Make sure you got your mask on. Make sure you got your two-meter distancing going on here. Or you know where we're going to jump around to? Back to the, the living room. Let's jump around the den again. All of a sudden, it's, it's, it's like a bad episode of Mrs. Doubtfire. All right, uh, I'll stop. You know, I'm on holidays in an hour. It is week number 19 of the Scott Thompson Home Show. Willers can back at the station, keeping us on the air. Feel free to jump into the conversation. You can do so through Facebook and Twitter. Uh, the phone lines are always open, which gets you a request on this All Request Friday as well. Don't forget, send us a note via the website, Thompson at 900CHML.com. All right, the good news is today Hamilton enters into Stage 3. Uh, unfortunately, Toronto and Peel and uh, Windsor still having some issues. Uh, they're going to be delayed probably another week or so. But again, as I mentioned several times, just because it's stage three, uh, it doesn't mean like we're partying like it's 1999 or the end of COVID-19. Uh, we still have to be very mindful of the precautions that are in place. To talk more about all of this, let's bring in Dr. Zane Chagla, infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital and with us now. Doctor, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. I am. How are you? I'm doing good, thanks. So how concerned are you, doctor, as we move into stage three and we're starting to see a little bit of an uptick, although, you know, then the next day we seem to flatten it out a bit. Your thoughts about where we are? Yeah, I mean, I, I think we're we're at a good place now. And, and realistically, you know, we're, we're at a part, point in time where we have to start testing a little bit to see what can open up, what can't open up, how we open up safely. And we've been very careful with our phasing up approach as compared to other places in, in North America. Um, I think we're, we're at a point now where we should open things up and, and really just see what happens in that sense and, and, uh, and make decisions kind of for the long-term future based on what happens over the next couple of months. You bring up a very valid point. It's the it's first time I've heard you, this used, but you're being very forthright about this. Because we don't know where you know much about this uh, uh, coronavirus, this is really a test to see how we can slowly reopen this new world with COVID-19 still very much present. No, it's very true. We all have different interactions in our life. There are different interactions that go into these places of businesses. Um, you know, we can always theorize where X and Y will occur. We can always look at case reports of what happened elsewhere in the world. But realistically, unless we actually carefully open them up and see what happens uh, and, you know, have tight controls of when to, to put the brake back down, we're never going to have a good sense of what could be open in the long term and what can't be open in the long term. And I think every industry uh that that's feasible deserves that evidence approach to actually see what what works and what doesn't work many have said uh keep it closed and you know uh we should be worrying about schools and where we're going there as opposed to opening up hospitality uh, again i i think this is a multifaceted situation and, and we can do more than one thing at once but yeah. you disagree that we should keep things closed that it is time for all facets of health to, to open this up I mean, as you said, this is a multifaceted approach, right? You know, everyone uh, has their particular uh, needs of what needs to be open. And certainly schools are a very important need for both children and for the parents of children uh, and their development. Um, but similarly, I think, you know, there are a lot of people that own uh, recreational establishments that are employed by recreational establishments where if we don't, you know, we, we have to give them the fair shake too, 
knowing that there are precautions, knowing what we know about this virus and what can be done to prevent it. But but again, we can't say that a bar or an indoor restaurant doesn't work unless we actually allow people to go to that bar and indoor restaurant. Uh, similar to we don't know if schools will or will not work if we don't allow kids to go back to school either. When do we know to dial it back? Where What are the red flags that say, oh, time to take a step back here? Yeah, I mean, I, I, you know, the transmission, for it to show up, you know, let's say today if there's transmission events, we would probably see it in about four or five days in terms of new cases showing up. Uh, and then, you know, as we, with every case, we do contact tracing, we see where people have been, we try to find patterns amongst the number of cases to see if it is related to a single establishment or a single risk behavior. Um, so, you know, I think we have a week or two to really assess what's going on, where, if there is an uptick in transmission. And similarly, in a week or two, if we're not seeing a massive rises in, in transmission, we can probably breathe a little bit of relief to say, okay, we can open up most sectors okay. And there may be setbacks. I mean, uh, when Kingston went into phase two, the nail salons opened up. There was a big transmission event at that nail salon. Some people said that was a, you know, a reason not to open up early. But at the end of the day, the public health folks got on top of it. People were tested. Contacts were traced. And they've essentially gone back down to normal baseline rates. So there may be one or two events. There's a little bit of a whack-a-mole element to this when, when things happen. But if we say consistently that five to ten bars are, are transmitting infections consistently, then we might have to step back and say, okay, maybe the bars aren't a good idea right now. Uh, if we, and I'm sure this is a question you probably can't answer, doctor, but I'll ask anyway. Um, if we continue on, we see numbers continue to go down or certainly stabilize. What is the reason for that? Is that because we are now going out in this new world and we are taking the proper precautions and protocol? Or is it that perhaps this uh, virus is waning and, I don't know, do people uh, become, um, uh, uh, will people build up antibodies to this naturally? If it does stay down, what does that say? I think it's more the former than the latter. I mean, I think that, uh, yeah. unfortunately, a great case example for the latter is what's happening to our neighbors to the south, where if yeah. you open things up indiscriminately after everything was doing well, you see indiscriminate growth, unfortunately. Um, you know, I think if, if the numbers stay stable, it means that the universal controls we've been preaching to people over the last few months, the physical distancing, the hand hygiene, not going out while ill, testing if you have symptoms, um, you know, they're working, the population is taking it because these plans to open up things in phase three are really based on those universal principles. So, you know, if the if numbers stay the same, it really is a good sense that those universal principles are actually working quite well. And we can breathe a sigh of relief that, you know, what we might have a slightly different bar experience or restaurant experience, but we can still open them up. So this really is in every individual's hands. Um, we are where we are due to those safe protocols. We will be able to continue to slowly reopen, move forward to that new world, only if we keep these safe protocols in mind. Otherwise, we're backwards. We have to very much remember that, do we not? Yeah, and, and it's also important, and I think the point that hasn't been emphasized quite a bit is you know, it's also based on everyone's risk assessment, too, an individual risk assessment, right? So these things are open. 
the messaging is is that they're done in a controlled manner, that people are still distancing, so that you know, just because you can go to a bar doesn't mean you can have a house party of 30 people in your home where you're not distancing. But also, if you're someone who's vulnerable, who's at risk, who thinks that they, they don't want to go inside a restaurant or don't want to go to a bar or sit on a patio rather than going inside, all the power to them, right? Like, at, at the end of the day, I think, Partly, we're going to set up controls of what we think are appropriate for society to transmit the disease, but each one of us individually also has to set up their own individual risk profiles to say what is within my scope of what I think is normal or abnormal. If you're a young, healthy person, you might be on the more riskier side or you know, be more open to do everything. But if you're a 75-year-old with some chronic conditions, you might want to say, maybe I'm going to live how we did in phase one and, and let, let's ride this out and not take any chances. Dr. Zane Chagla has been with us, an infectious disease specialist with St. Joseph's Hospital, offering his comments as we enter stage three. Doctor, thanks so much for the time and insight. Much appreciated. Be well. Yeah, you should have a good vacation. <laughs> Thank you. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Uh, other issues going on in the world, including the ongoing struggle, the ongoing uh, tensions between uh, China and the rest of the world. It's not just China and Canada, China and the United States, China and the UK. Uh, you know, go ahead, pick your ally. And hopefully what we're seeing here is uh, eventually in this very divisive world, allies unite and um, start uh, expressing their displeasure with the way China is bullying the world. Uh, this all stems, of course, from the arrest of the Huawei CFO uh, in Vancouver and then uh, the subsequent plucking off the street of the two Michaels and imprisoning them in much worse uh, conditions than what uh, the Huawei CFO is enjoying right now in Vancouver, and on and on it goes. Now, uh, her team has asked for a stay in the extradition case, citing uh, what uh, Donald Trump has said in the past in regard to this being tied to uh, trade issues. Let's bring in Charles Burton. He knows his way around here. Senior fellow, McDonald Laurier Institute. He is with us now. Charles, thank you for the time. Hope you're doing well. Good afternoon, Scott. So your thoughts, uh, even before we get to the, the Huawei CFO here, your thoughts on where we are, especially with uh, China and the United States going on, uh, closing down consulates and such. We've seen tit for tat. The Chinese have done the same. Uh, the Americans in Houston. Uh, your thoughts on all of this? Well, certainly the United States is getting on China's case with regard to China's gross violations of the you know, accepted norms of international behavior. So you know, as you say, they closed down the uh, the consulate in Houston. That's evidently because that consulate was being used as a center for espionage and for subversion and influence operations. Americans told the Chinese to, you know, cease doing that because it's not consistent with the diplomatic function of their people in Houston. Uh, China refused. Uh, Americans said those 60 diplomats all have to leave within 72 hours. And then China, of course, in retaliation, um, closes an American consulate in, in China, the one in Chengdu in the southwest. I mean, that's one thing. I mean, it's combined with a series of things the Americans are doing. With regard to Hong Kong, you know, the Hong Kong authorities have put in the, the national security law, which completely um, destroys Hong Kong's uh, freedoms and democracy that China had promised at the time of, of their uh, taking Hong Kong back from British sovereignty. Um, the Americans are saying any bank, any Chinese bank that deals with the officials who 
are implementing this illegal policy will be barred from the U.S. banking system. So they're putting a lot of financial pressure on the Chinese officials who are involved in in, um, in suppressing the freedoms in Hong Kong. Then with regard to to Xinjiang, um, the Americans have started their Magnitsky list and put some of the officials who are complicit in the uh, genocide of the Turkic Muslims up there onto the Magnitsky list, preventing freezing their assets in the United States and preventing them and their families from accessing the U.S. for tourism or business or education. And the Americans have put in a, are putting in a, a provisions with regard to labor produced in the concentration camps, most recently um, wigs, that the hair of which is suspected to have been shorn from um, Uyghur women prior to their incarceration. So the Americans are doing a lot of things uh, to try and stand up to China. And, of course, uh, China is not happy about this. And what China would really not like to see is other countries like Canada getting on the bandwagon and uh, showing our, our disdain for what China's been doing by enacting similar measures ourselves. Is that what is happening here? Are the allies finally starting to unite in this divisive world, Charles? And is, is China realizing that the allies are uniting? Well, I think that's the way it seems to be going. Certainly we're seeing the British have um, started to enact similar sorts of measures to the Americans. Our Australian cousins have been ahead of us in this and with regard to uh, cracking down on Chinese influence operations and violations of the normal rules of trade and demanding that we get some clarity from China about the origins of COVID-19 and so on. So I think it, it, it puts pressure on the government of Canada to start doing the right thing. You know, we, we talk a good line, but we don't actually do anything. You know, our foreign minister said that we're considering Magnitsky list maybe for Xinjiang. And with regard to Hong Kong, you know, we're considering providing safe harbor for persons in Hong Kong who might be subject to persecution under the uh, national security law. But when it actually gets down to to any kind of effective action, so far Canada's falling short. But I think if if there's a, an alliance of like-minded um, liberal democracies who say the way for us to to get China's relations with the world back on the rails is to is to act in a coordinated and um, and united way that uh, Canada would would have difficulty being the outlier in that, and that would certainly affect our our relations with our allies if Canada is seen as the weak link in attempting to restore the rules based uh, uh, international order against the outrages that China has been inflicting on it, including, as you say, the hostage diplomacy against Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor. Is that why Canada is taking such a passive role here, Charles? Is it because the two Michaels are being detained? Now that uh, things are moving forward as they are, why not just join those other allies? Yeah, I don't think that our policy of you know appeasing China um, has resulted in engendering goodwill with the Chinese regime and the release of Michael Kovrick and Michael's favor, because you know, they've been held now under hellish conditions for 19 months. Um, uh, you know, I think my, my feeling has been consistently, and I think uh, we've had this sort of discussion on your program, that Canada should show some backbone and that we'd gain more respect out of China and could start doing negotiations to get Kovrick's favor back to safety with their families if, in fact, we, we uh, started to do things like uh, ban Huawei and, and um, you know, start our Magnitsky list and start to show that 
that what China is doing is just completely unacceptable, and Canada is not uh, a weak and passive country that's susceptible to to Chinese um, influence. You know, so so I'd like to see us uh, starting to get with what other nations are doing, and it would be great if Canada could be in the forefront of this kind of movement rather than a reluctant uh, latecomer. Uh, getting back to the Huawei CFO case, extradition case, uh, they're now asking for this case to be stayed, uh, saying that the U.S. misled Canada uh, by not providing all of the information, and then again uh, referring to the Donald Trump comment, how this could be used in a trade negotiation. What are your thoughts about this next round of legal maneuvering? Well, you know, um, Ms. Mung, of course, has the best legal uh, minds working on her case that or huge amounts of money can buy, and um, you know it is a very complicated case. And certainly, if there was a notion that the reason for the U.S. requesting her extradition was for political reasons, you know, like somehow or other, Mr. Trump directed the U.S. judiciary to issue the extradition request because he thought it would pressure the Chinese government in trade negotiations. That would be one thing. There is no evidence that that's the case. And certainly the idea that Ms. Mung had defrauded American banks uh, who were concerned about the status of a Huawei subsidiary, um, which was doing business in Iran and thereby exposing those banks to being cut out of the American banking system for violating the Iran sanctions, is clear. You know, she, she made a power presentation where she suggested that this uh, subsidiary was not was not associated with Huawei, and that was a lie, you know, pretty clearly a lie. And, well, at least when she gets to court in the United States, well, you know, that will be determined. But it looks like, like she committed uh, serious bank fraud. And so all of these other factors, like, you know, the protocol of of her detainment in the Vancouver airport or whether Mr. Mr. Trudeau, for example, hoping that the Americans would resolve the Kovrigan's favor among matters before they signed on the bottom line with a trade deal with China, or, um, you know, a throwaway comment by President Trump at a press conference, you know, I, I think the, the bottom line is that it appears she, there's a good basis to believe she committed fraud, and therefore, you know, she does meet the criteria of her extradition treaty with the United States, and chances are, eventually, she'll get to the United States where she'll have an opportunity to defend herself against these serious charges. So, you know, it's unfortunate that her legal team is able to delay and postpone and and obfuscate the matter. The sooner she's out of Canada, the better it is for us to try and uh, restore Canada-China relations to some sort of um, consensus that the Chinese really have no basis for holding Culverkin's favor. Many keep coming back to the point that Donald Trump made, maybe because that's just the most salacious, but how damaging is that statement to this case? I, You know, it's hard, not being a lawyer, it's hard for me to assess, but I don't really think that the United States president has the ability to stop a judicial process occurring in um, the court in western New York State. Even with what he says? Yeah, I mean, there's a, you know, the judiciary in the United States is independent. Um, Trump cannot direct the, you know, someone to be uh, declared not guilty in court or, or declared to be guilty. That's just not the way that the American system works. It's certainly the way the Chinese system works, and therefore one could understand that the Chinese authorities think that, you know, if our prime minister wants a certain legal determination, all he has to do is call up a judge and, and order him to make that determination. 
But in our system, we have a separation of powers, thank God. And I think that you know, the U.S. government is not simply President Trump, but is uh, mediated by um, the Congress and, and, and the courts. Is this just another spoke in this wheel, uh, another card that they're playing here? Oh, yeah. I mean, they want the latest thing as, as long as possible. Clearly, they, they want Ms. Ms. Meng to be returned to China and not sent to the United States, where she might face a very long prison sentence, presumably not anything like the kind of comfort she's living in in Vancouver. Um, you, you know, but, and, and I mean, really, one doesn't know how the legal process will pan out. I, I think um, the recent ruling by B.C. Superior Court uh, Justice Heather Holmes suggests that they're pretty much focused on the fact that she's alleged to have committed fraud and that all of the other factors are not seen as central. And the fact that Canada d- did not have uh, Iran sanctions is not, doesn't have bearing on, on, um, on the fact that you know, fraud is a, is a crime in Canada as well as in the United States, and therefore the double criminality principle that you know, we only extradite people to other countries for activities that would be criminal in our own country uh, still, still holds. How much longer will this case go, Charles? I mean, is it just going to continue to exercise all of these options? Yeah, I mean, I think our hair will be white. Yeah. You know, if it's gray now, it'll be white by the time they're finished. Uh, you know, at the time when uh, Ms. Mung was up for bail initially, I mean, one of the factors in the extremely lenient bail that she has received was that the judge suggested that with um, appeals and delays, it could go over a decade. I think that the current thinking is that, you know, we're looking at something like 2024, but who knows? You know, these these things are, are, are ridiculous, and clearly justice delayed is justice denied. I mean, after all, you know, looking at it from Ms. Mung's point of view, what if it in fact turns out that these uh, allegations against her are not proven in court? She's completely innocent. Mm. Where does she get all those years of her life back? You know, I yeah. think this is a... Uh, an, a big issue for the way our judicial process works and the and the and the enormous amounts of time it seems to take to settle things that seem uh, you know one would assume could be done in a much shorter time frame if the if the will was there uh getting back to uh the ongoing tit for tat between the United States and China in regard to consulates and such where does this go is this just the beginning is this the first domino to fall is this just tension that will continue to increase well I, you know certainly there are a lot of things going on that could lead to uh, disengagement of uh, China and the United States and i think that it's fair to say that you know, the United States has a basis for believing that, that China's diplomats are engaged in activities which are not consistent with diplomatic status, specifically espionage, cyber espionage, and attempting to influence um, American policymakers uh, through uh, covert, uh, coercive, and corrupt means. So, I mean, all those things are there. And um, so, from that point of view, you know, one would hope that the Chinese government would rethink the costs of engaging in that way of of, um, of uh, dealing with the United States and and get more back into sort of standard uh, practices for diplomatic engagement. Um, but you know, the Americans are also talking about banning all members of the Chinese Communist Party and their family members from coming to the United States, um, and that. You know, if you put the 90-some 
million members of the party plus their families, you'd be talking 270 million people who would be barred from from access to the U.S. And that that really would be something that would um, lead to a, a an inability of um, China and the U.S. to to communicate and collaborate. And I think it would probably um, be very badly received within China because so many people in China, in the Chinese Communist Party and people of means, want to uh, park their their assets uh, in countries like the United States and they want to send their children to study in uni- U.S. universities, including you know, the current president of China, Xi Jinping, whose daughter studied at Harvard. And so this kind of sanction by the United States might actually work in terms of, of bring the Chinese round to the idea that it's better to play by the rules than to than to float them and engage in in um, behaviors like hostage diplomacy and uh, and corrupting of of uh, Canadian um, policymakers that that uh, you know may may work in the short term but in the long term works against China's interest and international reputation and our ability to trust them in any kind of uh, negotiations or treaties uh, we certainly know how uh, Donald Trump can can be divisive and distract away from the issue. As you have mentioned and many other experts have on this show, uh, his attitude towards the Communist Party of China, the Chinese Communist Party, is accurate, and, and we should be, should be aware of that. However, uh, he has done a lot to divide the allies and such. Is it unfashionable? to side with Donald Trump even when he is occasionally on the right track? Well, I, that, I mean, that is the thing. Uh, certainly, uh, I think that, that um, you know, it is very difficult for us to deal with Mr. Trump because he's so inconsistent and, uh, and uh, you know, he says things which uh, turn out not to be true. <laughs> you know, just, just a difficult, uh, a difficult partner for Canada. I think that, um, you know, if there is a change of uh, the presidency at the next election and we get uh, President Biden, say, that uh, the attitude towards China's role in the world will be the same. You know, the one thing that's occurred in the United States, I think, is consensus has formed between the Republicans and the Democrats that really we have to um, stand up to, to what China's been doing in terms of violations of the norms of international trade and uh, and diplomacy, and so uh, obviously you know there's probably no one in, in the world who's less Canadian than Donald Trump, and we could work better with um, with somebody else. Uh, that being said, you know we also work with a lot of other elements within the U.S. system and the State Department and National Security Council, and uh, I think that um, you know we we do have some commonality of interest on this. And if we can work with the United States and our allies in a in a united way, then our chances of freeing Kovrikin's favor go up considerably. I mean, after all, the Chinese would never have dared to have uh, taken in a uh, American diplomat on leave yeah. or an American businessman. So, you know, we're we're a victim of the asymmetrical power relationship between Canada and China bilaterally. And uh, we ought to do something about that by by starting to multilateralize our engagement with China so that we're dealing in a more equal and balanced way so we can have fair and reciprocal relations that uh, are to the mutual benefit of both. Charles Burton has been with us, Senior Fellow, McDonald-Laurier Institute. Charles, as always, thank you so much for the time. Much appreciated. Have a great weekend. Be well. To you too, Scott. Take care. 
It is 12.53, news on the way, and then we will cover Premier Doug Ford's news conference live coming up just after 1 o'clock. You're listening to the Scott Thompson Show podcast on 900 CHML. Let's bring in the Reverend Jim Carrier for his uh, message of hope and wisdom on a Friday from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines, and he is with us now. Jim, thank you for the time. I hope you're doing well. I am doing well, Scott. How about yourself? I'm doing very well, thank you. Uh, are you sensing more optimism as we slowly get out of this and get into stage three, albeit with all the protocol? You know what? I have to say I am, um, because um, things are, are, well, not really quite back to normal, but starting to get back to normal. And, and I think that the big thing for me um, is, is the fact that we're able to meet indoors in restaurants. I think that's a big deal, um, not because I enjoy restaurants, but just from a standpoint of of moving forward, that, that being indoors is, is, is a big deal. And I think that, that that kind of moves us forward, especially in, in, in the summertime. We're, we're looking to get out. We're looking to do our usual summer things, uh, gather at the beach, et cetera, get the kids to the playground, and all of these things are, are happening. Mind you, as you said, we have to continue taking precautions. COVID has not gone away. It's still there. But as long as we take the precautions to protect ourselves and to protect one another, I see no reason why we shouldn't be very positive and rejoicing in, in, in this particular day where we're moving into stage three. Uh, there's lots of examples of people going beyond uh, the call of duty and, and bringing, you know, we're seeing this bring out the best in people. We're unfortunately seeing it also bring out the worst in people. Uh, you know, I saw an interesting pack your ma- an interesting slogan today, pack your mask and pack your patience. How important is it as we get into this new normal that we do remember each other and, and be patient? Well, one of the means I saw was mask it or casket. Uh, which is yeah, <laughs> but uh, well, I think mask masking is important. I think I think staying with the protocols is important, and I think that these parameters help us to enjoy the freedoms that we're getting back. And that without these parameters, we would not be able to enjoy the freedoms that we're getting. We wouldn't be able to go into restaurants anymore, or even or even gather at playgrounds or, or whatnot. So these parameters are in place in order to to, to protect us, and they're they are a, a good thing. Uh, my um, caution would be to to not get your information from from a Facebook meme. Um, mm. They're fun, they're enjoyable, they're funny, but uh, but just go right to the sources, right to the science, right to the health organizations, go right to the sources as to what we think those parameters should be and what they actually are, and then just living within those parameters is just another step to getting back to normal. So I think it's a good thing. Uh, we've, we've obviously been told to, uh, keep the two and a uh, two meter distance, uh, obviously wear masks, although they aren't mandatory in all places on Ontario because we have such a diverse province. They are certainly in, in most municipalities and in, in dense areas. Uh, how am, uh, that being said, not everyone can wear one for medical reasons, for whatever reason. How important is it we don't judge each other during this time? Well, I think it's important because everyone's circumstances are different, and we need to we need to understand that. And even for those who who cannot wear masks, cannot physically wear masks because of health issues, uh, and I know and all few people who are in that position, there are still you know there's still the 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 the, the six foot the two meter rule. There's still um, measures in place where they can still participate in community. They just have to be a little more careful. And one of the things I stress with our with with my congregation, we got back uh, together at church last Sunday, which worked out well. But one of the things that I stressed was, you know, some people are not going to decide that they're comfortable doing this just yet, and that's okay. 
because mm-hmm. we all have our own different circumstances. And once we learn to respect those circumstances, as opposed to this, you know, this whole movement toward the right not to wear a mask, I'm not sure what that right is, but just, just be aware of one another's needs that we can get through this and that we can make exceptions for people who truly need, who truly need those exceptions made in order for them to enjoy a quality of life that they once had before this thing started. What was it like uh, last Sunday getting back with the congregation? It was great. They were well behaved. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I was worried that they would just kind of move in on each other and just start hugging each other. And, but they were well behaved. We had we had properly marked the church. We take we'd taken all the precautions. Uh, we had about a third of our congregation come, and that's okay. Uh, but uh, but they were but but it was good, and we were really it was really a time of of worship it wasn't it wasn't normal by any stretch you know there were still things that we had we had to follow the guidelines and stuff but it was a good experience and it was good for people you can see i can see that they just enjoyed seeing one another again and talking to one another again even though if it was if it was through a mask and that's the lesson here isn't it you know uh, not that your sermons aren't very advantageous but it's a new world and the experience is really the message here isn't it I think so, and I think I think that's that. You know, we're we're meant to 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 interact. We're meant to be together. We're not we're meant to to be community together. And I mean that for all humanity. I mean, we're just we're not meant to be to be creatures of isolation. And so, you know, if you know, as I said at the at the onset, that if these measures that are in place are giving us the ability to engage one another again then take those measures and engage with one another. It's the only way to move forward. It's the only way to move out of this. And it's, it's the only way to, to get our lives of community back and, our, and, and, and restore, if you will, for lack of a better word, restore the relationships that have since been hampered by this separation and by this isolation. Reverend Jim Carrier has been with us from Good Shepherd Church in St. Catharines. Don't forget, you can check out his sermons on his Facebook page. Jim, as always, thank you so much for the time. Be well as you enter Stage 3. I'm off for a couple of weeks, but hopefully we can pick this up uh, uh, when I'm back and uh, or whoever's filling in for me can keep this going. But uh, you be well. Say hi to Jude. You too. Enjoy your vacation. Enjoy your holiday. And virtual hugs to all. God bless. Back at you. The Scott Thompson Show, weekdays from noon to 3 on 900 CHML. This is the Scott Thompson Podcast, available on Apple Podcast and Google Podcast or wherever you get yours. And don't forget to subscribe, rate, and review so you don't miss a thing. I'm Scott Thompson, and thanks for listening. There you go.